0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Millar, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Christopher Bader about his book, Fear Itself, The Causes and Consequences of Fear in America, co-authored with Joseph Baker, L. Edward Day, and Gordon, published in 2020 by NYU Press. Dr. Bader is a professor of sociology at Chapman University and affiliated with the Institute for Religion, Economics, and Society. He was principal investigator of the first two waves of the Baylor Religion Survey, a nationwide study of U.S. religious beliefs, and the principal investigator of the first three waves of the Chapman Survey of American Fears. He is associate director of the Association of Religion Data Archives the world's largest archives of religion survey data. Dr. Bader has been studying paranormal beliefs for over 20 years and has expertise in religion, the paranormal, and fear. Chris, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, so can you begin the interview just by saying a few words about yourself?
1: Sure, I think you covered it fairly well in that intro, but uh, my name is Chris Bader. I am a professor of sociology I've been a professor now for about 15 years and have an interest in all sorts of uh, research projects, survey survey research, ethnographic research, field work. I try to use a, a variety of different methods in the work that I do.
0: Sure. So how did you come to write this book and what inspired you to um, begin this study in this book?
1: Sure. It has sort of a strange origin, which is um, when I was um, in... In college, actually, at the end of my undergraduate career and before I started my graduate studies was the time at which the United States was undergoing um, something known as the satanic panic. I don't know if you've heard of that or not, but yeah. um, it was a period of time in the late 80s and 1990s when there were claims that secretive underground satanic groups were um, were killing people and um, erasing their memories. And it was a, a major panic in the sense that it actually um involved mainstream authority that of figures police officers social workers therapists started to buy into these claims and it started to have real widespread effects on society before it sort of petered out in the late 90s that fascinated me because i was able to see it firsthand i lived in a town where a major case um, related to uh, the satanic panic happened and that led me to be interested with, in fear and panic throughout my career and once i had a chance to develop a survey i that interest came back to the fore and it decided to propose a survey of fear.
0: Sure. So tell us about the methods that you use to um to conduct the research that
1: you talk about in this book. Sure. It's um there's a variety of methods used in the book. The the fear survey itself, which the majority of the quantitative findings are drawn from, is called the Chapman University Survey of American Fears. And that is a survey uh, data set that is collected every year uh, from a representative sample of the adult U.S. population. And um, that survey includes a variety of items. It has background characteristics of people so we can find out their educational level, their religion, other background characteristics. And the majority of the content are a large uh, collection of items that are related to fears. Uh, Essentially, in a nutshell, it's asking people, are you afraid of this? How afraid are you of that? And there's over 80 different fears that we ask about. Um, in addition to the survey data, which is certainly the, the main underpinnings of this project, we also engaged in ethnographic research. By we, I'm, I mean myself and my co-authors. We went to UFO conventions. We spent time with preppers, um, and we've also engaged in focus groups with people where we asked them about their fears and how those fears affect their lives. So it's a, a variety of different methods that went into the book itself.
0: Yeah. Um, so, what was the experience like of conducting this research, especially the ethnographic part? Because I imagine those are really interesting places to go into. So, what was your experience like, and how did you sort of gain the trust of your participants?
1: Sure. Um, that uh, it, it was it was a very interesting, as as you as you imagine that uh, the UFO conventions were really a fascinating place to uh, to study conspiracy theories. Um, I think we've. We found, um, and this is not just in this project, it's been in all the research, ethnographic research that I've done and Joseph has done, that uh, we have always focused on being open and honest with people about why we're there. We never claim to be anything but sociologists who are, are studying, are studying the belief system of whatever group that we're uh, engaged with, but also. Frankly, I think that people uh, see our genuine enthusiasm. I'm excited when I'm at a UFO conference. I can't believe my luck that as a academic I get to study a setting like this. And that oftentimes enthusiasm and um, honesty about your motives. And also at the end of the day, I've always been careful with every field work, the project that I've done, that I never say anything um, that would embarrass the people that I study. I'm not trying to make fun of them, even though they have beliefs that a lot of people don't accept. <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's crucial when studying any sort of marginalized population um, or, you know, understudied population. Um, But jumping right into the book's content, just broadly, what are some of America's greatest fears?
1: Sure. I I think it's really important to make a huge caveat here um, that um, obviously we are in the midst of a major fear inducing uh, event right now, which is the which is the the COVID pandemic. And um, I want the listeners to be sure to understand that that this the last survey that was conducted that is a part of this book project was conducted well before um, COVID was even on people's minds. And Mm -hmm. so uh, that is um, going to make the next round of surveys that we do extraordinarily interesting. But um, what we found is that the number one fear of Americans over many waves of the survey pre-COVID was corrupt government officials. That um, seems to be one fear that people are united about, uh, whether they are liberal or conservative, um, they agree that our government is corrupt and nearly three fourths of Americans are afraid of the the outcomes of having a corrupt government. Um, Other than that, things that sort of round out our top 10, meaning things that the largest percentage of Americans indicate that they are afraid of, are issues related to the environment, like the pollution of our oceans, rivers, and lakes, pollution of drinking water, um, extinction of plant and animal species. And then you also find that health-related items are high on our list. And again, this was pre-pandemic, but uh, number six on our list, the sixth most common fear is is being afraid of people I love dying. Mm-hmm. Um, also rounding out our top 10 was being afraid of high medical bills. So uh, government corruption, pollution, and um, health-related issues generally are in our top 10. And um, what we are going to see in the near future, I am having a hard time predicting, although pandemics will clearly jump up the list.
0: Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how that affects findings over time. Um, But you also talk a bit or not more than a bit, a lot in the book about conspiracy. Um, so can you just define what you mean by when you talk about conspiracy and what do most of the conspiracies that you cover in the book, what do they have in common?
1: Sure. Um, a, con- a conspiracy theory is a a belief that there are powerful secret forces that are manipulating the world, manipulating world events for their own gain. So, um, and, and conspiracy theories are, Are obviously really popular. Uh, They've been studied over time. What we're trying to figure out in our survey is the extent to which they may be growing, and uh, because we don't have a strong baseline, that's difficult to say at this moment. But but um, we find that there definitely are certain commonalities uh, in these conspiracy theories that we um, both other scholars have found and that we found as well in the work that we did. That conspiracy theories always have some sort of kernel of truth. That that's the thing that makes conspiracy theories difficult, because when you talk to someone about conspiracy theories, um, some of the times some of the things that people have said to us, well, isn't it true that things like Watergate happened and uh, that conspiracies do, in fact, happen, that, in fact, rich people do sometimes manipulate the system for their own gains? And 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 we say, obviously, of course. So many conspiracies have that sort of kernel of truth. They start with a premise that the government sometimes lies to us, that powerful people have disproportionate influence in the world. And that kernel of truth is sort of this seed from which the, uh, on which the conspiracy theory can grow, from which the conspiracy theory can grow. But beyond that kernel of truth, there's also this important belief amongst conspiracy theorists. And this is something that we see amongst uh, just generally paranormalists that things are not what they seem. And that very statement, things are not what they seem, is, is an actual phrase we would hear quite often, uh, both in our examination of the conspiracy literature and in talking to um, conspiracy theorists themselves, that um, what we're looking at is not what how things actually are. Um, Once people are sort of have those two premises, then they start to generally develop these large webs of connections that they start to connect things that we don't ordinarily connect. And that's one of the keys of conspiracies. When we suddenly start connecting the moon landing to 9-11, we start connecting banks to aliens. This is what we start to see in conspiracy theories. And that's really sort of the, um, the fertile ground in which Alex Jones thrives, is making these strange connections. Yeah. Um, but, but really the last, the last of these things we see that are commonalities amongst most conspiracy theories is that the really hardcore conspiracy theorists, the ones where it's more than just sort of a passing interest, they really see conspiracy theories as this capital T truth that they need to get out there, that they need to spread this word. And, and when we, when we get to that point, conspiracy theories become a lot like, um, sort of more conservative religions.
0: Sure, sure. So can you give us some examples of like some of the most common or popular conspiracies that you found um, and that you talked about in your book?
1: Sure. Um, We asked about level of belief in a variety of different conspiracy theories. and We've done it a little bit over time. And some of the um, some of the ones that we asked about that proved to have the most resonance, meaning the most people believed in them, were conspiracies about 9-11. And um, just for a methodological aside, the question we actually asked is the government knows more than it's telling us about X. Um, it's difficult to ask about conspiracy theories. And some of your listeners may say you should have asked about it in a better way because the government knows more about everything that it's probably telling us. But but we but we assume that um, and we found that when people would answer very strongly in the affirmative, that that was tied to other other issues related to conspiracy. But um, 9-11 conspiracies are very popular. Um Conspiracy theories about the assassination of JFK are um, quite prevalent. Um, We also um, asked about uh, conspiracies about uh, aliens, whether the government knows more than it's telling us about alien beings. And that proved to be quite, uh, quite popular, too. Um, We asked about conspiracies about the Illuminati, uh, conspiracies about mass shootings. The, the big three are aliens, 9-11, and JFK, because those are the three where over half of Americans expressed a level of belief in them. Um, the strangest one we asked about was something called the South Dakota crash. Um, and uh, the reason that's strange is because it doesn't exist. There is nothing called the South Dakota crash other than the thing that we made up. But we wanted to determine if Americans would sort of have an overall conspiratorial worldview that if you told them something which had no had nothing behind it, they would still say that this is probably true. And in fact, uh, nearly a third, 32 percent of Americans said, yes, the government knows more than it's telling us about the South Dakota crash. So um, we're waiting to see if the South Dakota crash becomes a thing. <laughs> so
0: that's so interesting. I think it's a really good question to include on a survey like that. And I also, like, I agree with your methodological choice there, um, because I feel like if you did ask someone outright, are you a conspiracy theorist? Sure, some people would say yeah, but some people would, you know, say no and attempt to sort of save face because they know that they could get made fun of or they don't want to be seen as a conspiracy theorist. So I think you, you went about that in, in a good way. Um but so you t- use this term in your book, conspiratorial Gnosticism. So what is conspiratorial Gnosticism and what are the four principles that you talk about in your
1: book? Well, um, the, uh, the conspiratorial Gnosticism is um, this idea, and this is behind the idea of Gnosticism, that um, that you have acquired some form of secret knowledge, that you have some something that you know. That is not widely known, or only people who are special that have the ability to discern or the ability to recognize this knowledge have it. And um, so, this is generally knowledge that will make the believer feel special because they hold it. Um, and and that is sort of the key behind Gnosticism in general. And we see this form of conspiratorial Gnosticism where we see these these groupings of people that are developing in society who feel themselves um, to be these special, knowledgeable. Um, keepers of stigmatized knowledge, and that's a key part of conspiracies. Is this idea that um, that this knowledge is stigmatized? That um, that people who hold conspiracy theories, the real diehard conspiracy theorists, sometimes feel that they are special or unique because they are promoting material that the mainstream institutions, such as science and government, don't want you to know or view as illegitimate. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, but the four, the four principles we talked, we already discussed this with conspiracy theories, these four kind of similarities, Mm -hmm. the idea that once someone holds them, that they, um, that they will tend to believe that things are not what they seem and develop these large webs of connection with other things.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah. And this next point, um, you argue that there's been a proliferation of conspiracies, uh, and that's something that I found really interesting. So like, why do you, why do you think that conspiracies have become more common?
1: Sure. Um, and we're speculating here that one of the things that we are trying to do with the survey is develop baselines. Um, we mm-hmm. think it's really important that um, if we're going to track the rise of conspiracy theories, paranormal beliefs, fears, all of these things, we have to establish baselines which simply don't exist. Um, if you look back in time, you will find questions about conspiracies and fears on other surveys, but they are one-off questions about one, t- one specific phenomena. They're only, they were only asked in a particular year. The reason I'm making this point is that we are speculating here about conspiracies because we're just we are at the start of this project, not the end. But in the few years we've asked about conspiracies, we've seen both the percentage of belief in each conspiracy rise and the percentage of Americans who believe in at least one of them go up. And that's important that um, that Americans tend to have um, with regards to both the paranormal and conspiracies, sort of a particularistic skepticism, we call it that um, this is when you talk to a relative um, about UFOs and they say, no UFOs, that's a stupid idea. Let me tell you about the ghosts that I saw in the house. That's particularistic skepticism when people will um, maybe um, decry some beliefs but strongly focus on others. And that's what we're seeing with conspiracy theories more and more is that people will strongly buy into 9-11, even if they think JFK and moon landing conspiracies are silly. And um, in that rise that that we've seen in the last few years, we believe a large part of it has to do uh, with the rise of what we call narrow cast media and focus media. The um, the one of the downsides of uh, of the Internet is that it's very smart. Um, and if you start searching for something, it will start showing you things like the things you have searched for. And that's good in some ways. It's bad for conspiracy theories because. Once you start searching for evidence that the moon landing didn't happen, then you're going to start being fed websites, which further confirm that view that you already have. And um, what we're seeing is these information silos that are developing on the Internet. Uh, This is well recognized in research on things like Fox News, et cetera. But we're seeing it with conspiracies as well, where it's getting easier and easier and easier for people to put themselves down a rabbit hole that they will never emerge from.
0: Mm -hmm. Are there particular demographic characteristics that predict a belief in conspiracies or is it sort of across the board?
1: Um, what we find in general is that conspiracy theories are, and this is not just simply our, we've confirmed this with our research, but other mm-hmm. scholars have, have recognized this before that um, there's high levels of conspiracy beliefs or higher levels amongst people without social power. So people with mm-hmm. lesser levels of education, lesser levels of income, are people who tend to believe, are uh, more likely to believe, or have stronger levels of belief in conspiracy theories. And to be clear, um, neither uh, neither myself and my co-authors or other researchers, we're, we're not making an, a, a stupidity argument. I hate those t- sort of arguments when we say someone believes in X because they have a lower level of education. Um, I think what's going on here is that if you have a lower level of income in education, um, you have less power um, or control over your life events, meaning you have less um, social capital, you have less literal capital to protect you against events, and therefore your future is more uncertain. And uh, we definitely have seen from both our research and others that conspiracy theories are strongly related to uncertainty. The less certain you are about your own future, the more control you tend to ascribe to other people. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and yeah. Um, I like the distinction you made about um, less social power versus just less education because I could see how it could be really easy for someone to fall into the idea of these people believe in conspiracies because they don't have a lot of education. But the distinction with social power is, is an important one to make. Um, and then I want to shift a little bit to talk about some of the um, the other topics in your book. Um, so what is a doomsday prepper? And can you talk a little bit about the prepper communities that um, you and your co-authors study?
1: Sure. Um, a doomsday prepper, or um, oftentimes they'll just call themselves a prepper. They oftentimes don't add that mm-hmm. doomsday to, the, to themselves, are, are groups of people who believe that a catastrophic disaster is likely to occur in the future and um they make active preparations for it so it's those two phenomena believing that a disaster is going to occur in their lifetime and then not just believing that but actively preparing for it so they are not simply putting their heads in the ground and saying this is going to get me they're saying i'm going to face this disaster and i'm going to come to the other side and i'm going to do it by stockpiling food ammunition and other supplies, they, they actually have a term for this beans, bullets and bandages. <laughs> that, uh, I'm going to store food, I'm going to protect myself, and I'm going to be able to um, help myself medically and my family members if I need to. So they they make these plans. Oftentimes they have um, this more serious preppers and you can think of preppers sort of like a lot of belief systems on a scale. Um, but the most serious and committed preppers will oftentimes have a bug out location, they call it. It's a location that they have developed that they think is the safest place to wait out some sort of apocalyptic disaster.
0: Sure, sure. Um, And are there like typically large communities of preppers or are they more do they more operate on an individual basis?
1: Well, it's, it, it's a little bit of both that, um, preppers get together for different sort of conferences and, um, workshops related to prepping in very large groups. And sometimes we'll have campouts, And we talk about one of those, um, prepper meetings in, in the book. That was my colleague and Gordon, who is an expert on, on preppers and, um, disaster related beliefs who actually went and spent some time at one of these, these meetings, really interesting stuff. Um, so they will get to get. They they are not isolationists in the sense that uh, they're they're hiding from other people. They will get together. They're quite active in sharing information with other preppers, um, but they they do definitely believe that when the time comes, when uh, the the great disaster comes, that they will need to fend for themselves. So it's it's a strange sort of mixture. These these are not people hiding in their house right now. They're oftentimes very very active and 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 um, exchanging information with other people, meeting in person to exchange information and buy supplies, but they will sort of hunker down by themselves oftentimes with only their family unit when a disaster comes
0: are preppers um, is this phenomenon related to conspiracies in any way
1: um it can be certainly that um that some uh, some preppers do show a tendency to believe in conspiracies because there's, there's these packages of things that go together, and obviously conspiracy theories and apoco- apocalyptic ideas about the end of the world, sometimes religious ideals, they can all come together. And um, what uh, Dr. Gordon found is that some preppers were, were very secular, um, some were very religious, and they had both conspiratorial beliefs and apocalyptic beliefs about the end of the world, that they believed in conspiracies, for example, about an antichrist arising. And that antichrist would cause different bad things to happen, which would lead to the end of the world. So I wouldn't say that we should not assume that a prepper in in and of itself is is or is going to be a conspiracy theorist, but we do find a lot of conspiracies amongst preppers. Mm-hmm. But we find a lot of conspiracy theories amongst the general public as well.
0: Sure. And jumping back a little bit to our conversation about conspiracies, um does, do are communities forming around different conspiracies and what do those communities look like?
1: Um well, communities in in the um in the loose sense that mm-hmm. um that uh, there are many, uh, well, or there there were before uh, we started social distancing, many many conferences related to different conspiracies. Uh, there's certainly different um, different books and websites devoted to certain uh, conspiracies. So so definitely there is are these communities that develop around these belief systems online. They're not especially strong communities because most people who believe in conspiracy theories that's part of a wider belief system and a whole host of other things such as aliens and um, other conspiracy beliefs so they they don't tend to make as strong a community as um as other forms of belief they certainly are not conspiracy groups certainly are not of the strength of religious organizations
0: sure sure and i want to move next to um a broader question that you talk about in your book and a more uh a question that's more connected to social theory is what social forces are shaping fears. Um, And that can be fear in conspiracies, fear of crime, but like in general, what social forces um, do you notice or do you, are you arguing shape the fear of um, these specific things you talk about?
1: Sure. Um, There now, uh, as you just mentioned that there are certain forces, which, shape certain types of fear the fear of crime is an area which is somewhat unique in that there are certain things that that affect fear of crime that don't don't affect others but um but in terms of general social forces there's a lot that um sociologists would recognize when it when it comes to uh anomie that's related to to fear that that we see um fear generally rise in times of great uncertainty when we um do not know what is coming next and when we feel uncertain about our futures we find that fears um, tend to rise, that there's a strong relationship between feelings of uncertainty and fear of all kinds, even things that you might think of more as phobias, like uh, like uh, fear of the dark. But um, other, other forces that we, we find that, um, that definitely have an impact on fear are, again, this idea of, of social capital, that uh, people who have lower levels of social capital have greater levels of fear. So any time where we see some sort of economic catastrophe like we're facing right now, where large swaths of people are going to be faced with a level of economic uncertainty that they have not faced before or is greater than they've faced before, we should expect fear to go up. And um, we don't want to be right. I, I want to be clear about that, but we expect that fear levels will have skyrocketed by the time we do our next survey. But um, another force that, that definitely influences fear is is the media in different ways that um, and we, I can talk about that in more length if you want, but the media plays a very large role in, in in perpetuating fear in certain ways.
0: Yeah. So talk about how the media perpetuates fear of crime and fear of terrorism.
1: Sure. Um, uh, The, the way that the media sort of um, exacerbates our fears is that, uh, that the media always shows us the worst, that is going on. If not the worst, certainly the most unusual. And it's a difficult issue because we can't. We certainly can't blame the media for doing this. This is not an attempt to to uh, play the blame game here. But um, but the fact is, is that news is only news because it is different. And we know as news consumers that we don't pay attention to a story that appears whether online in our social media feed or a newspaper or the television if it is just reporting on the everyday. Um, I joke with my students that you will never follow the link on a story that says that um, two drunk men got into a fight over football at a bar. Um, Because that is common. That is every day. There's nothing particularly unusual about that. It's stories we've heard many times, but we will click on the link when we see a story about some horrifying serial killer. And. The problem is the problem with that is that generally um, people believe when they've seen a story online that that is an indicator of commonality when it's actually an indicator of rarity. And that's what we hope to try to educate people on, which is surprisingly, most people, when you ask them about this, they're not aware of it, that um, they that the average American believes that serial killers are uh, that serial killings are growing dramatically over time. And they are, in fact, plummeting dramatically over time. But over the last few decades, we've had an increasing focus on serial killers, um, both in popular media and in news coverage and on the various documentaries about them. And the problem is, is that strange coverage, unique and particularly horrifying events draw our attention. And that's not surprising. And it's our fault that we like to see that stuff. But the media also knows what to give us. The problem lies in how we interpret it, that we interpret the fact that we're seeing a serial killer as a sign that our neighbor is probably one when really, if you're, if you're viewing serial killers, if you're watching, I don't know what discovery uh, um, discovery channel all day, and they show you 10 serial killers, just watch out for those 10 people. Those are the 10 people that are all the serial killers running around right now. And that's, that's what you need to worry about. And so that's, it's a real issue for, I think, communication scholars, for media scholars to determine how can we get that message out there? Because, this, this rarity effect of the media really does exacerbate fear greatly.
0: And does it work the same way for like acts of terrorism?
1: Yes, absolutely. That, um, that, uh, that, um, terrorist, uh, terrorist events, um, are more publicized and certainly more likely to be publicized as terrorist events when, um, when the terrorist, so to speak, fits the classical model that's been perpetuated of what a terrorist is. In other words, Americans believe when you ask them on surveys that, um, terrorist events by, by Muslims are increasing and that most terrorist events have been per- in the United States have been perpetuated by Muslims. When in fact, anyone who knows, um, studies of terrorist events in the United States know that most and, uh, most of the cases have been perpetu- perpetuated by white supremacists in the United States. So, um, the fact that, um, the media tends to show us what we fear the most, and uh, we fear we fear sort of p- people perceived as outsiders attacking us. And when we see that, it helps to confirm that idea in our minds. Unfortunately, mm-hmm.
0: I think it's a good segue into one of my other questions, which is, what is xenophobia, and how does that impact fear?
1: Sure, um, xenophobia is the the fear in general of of strangers but more specifically in most cases foreigners and immigrants that it's it is this belief that um that foreigners and immigrants when it's when we're talking about xenophobia writ large it's this belief that foreigners and immigrants are likely here to do us harm are here to uh if not on purpose it's going to result in great harm to our culture in some way it's it's um xenophobia, just simply the fear of foreigners and immigrants is wider and more common than specific forms of of racism. So um, basically to put it a, a simple way, nearly all racists are xenophobic, as you wouldn't be surprised, but not all xenophobes are at least overtly racist. It's a broader sort of idea of just the fear of the other. And sometimes that is tied together with specifically racist views about that other as well. Sometimes it's simply the idea, well, they're strangers. They will not fit in. They will not uh, be part of our culture. Therefore, that will lead to some sort of negative consequences.
0: Yeah. And then going back to, uh, to um, fear of crime. So is there a difference? And if so, what is that difference between fear of crime and fear of being the victim of crime?
1: Sure. Um, really, there, there there is a difference in how and how people respond there that um, that we ask questions about um, fears that someone that you know will be the victim of crime versus fears that you yourself will be the victim of crime. And so, and there's a lot of interesting methodological issues that we're trying to, to grapple with when it comes to fear of crime, um, about who is, who are you afraid of being the victim of crime? Are you afraid of someone, you know, just in general, that these crimes are happening, that they will happen to you. We are also interested in trying to figure out, um, the, uh, People's fears that, that crime in general is just a sign of overall social disorder. So there's lots of subtleties there in, in how you measure fear of crime. And the fear of crime is really the most well-developed area of the fear literature. You'll find in criminology much research on the fear of crime.
0: And what are some of the predictors of fear of crime? Um, like, is it gender? Is it religion? Belief in like a supernatural evil?
1: Um, he- all, all of those things, actually, mm-hmm. that we find that um, that women are more afraid of crime than men um, in general, that um, there are some interesting religion effects that in general, if you go to church, if you're attending church services, that is a that generally is related to feeling lower levels of fear. There's something about attending services with other religious people that seems to promote some feeling of comfort that reduces fear. But if you believe in the idea of a supernatural force of evil, in other words, what I mean here is if you believe in the United States of the of in Satan, in uh, demons and devils, that was related to strongly um, higher levels of fear of crime. That basically uh, people believe that the devil literally is motivating people to <laughs> to engage in crime. Um, there, there are. Um, Younger people, surprisingly, um, and we found a lot of effects where younger people were more afraid of a variety of things. And we sort of expected that older people would be more afraid, but younger people are more afraid of crime. Um, And watching TV, uh, this sort of confirms what we've been talking about with media effects, that if you're watching a lot of TV, that tends to lead to a very strongly and sharp increase in your fear of crime. Because if you think about it, if you're watching Watching TV, particularly your local news or um, one of the one of the news stations like MSNBC, Fox News, whatever, you're probably going to see during the course of the day the, whatever crime is happening in the area, and that will increase your your level of fear.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we've talked about a number of different types of fears, ranging from conspiracy theories, which I argue would have an element of fear, um, to preppers, to fear of crime. Um, so what are the consequences of all of this fear?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, the, uh, the consequences of fear are, are, are widespread and they are, uh, they're, they're kind of bad. Um, and this, this is where it's really important to, um, to, uh, make the caveat of when, when the research was conducted. One of the things that we find, and this is again, not just, not just our work, but the work of others, scholars who have researched fear is that when people are very afraid that tends to lead to social isolation. And that, is, um, and that generally has negative consequences for people, which is a strange thing to say because right now we are talking about the great benefits of social isol- isolation given the unique circumstances we're in of trying not to spread a virus. But in general, um, when you are afraid, you will isolate yourself from other people. And um, that isolation can lead to very bad physical and mental health consequences. There's really interesting research uh, about fear of crime Amongst the older population that that finds that um, when older people tend to be afraid of crime, they will retreat from their neighborhoods. And this will literally lead them to walk around less, exercise less, talk to other people less. And this will cause all sorts of, of negative consequences. Um, but there's a, there's a host of other things that people that when you are afraid, you're, you're more easily manipulated by other people. That um, fear is very strongly related to voting patterns. It's very strongly related to buying products that um, you've been told will help um, help limit the consequences of this item, whatever you're afraid of. There's very powerful effects on, li- on life satisfaction. That um, the the more afraid you are in general of a, a wide variety of things, the less happy you are with your life, the less happy you are with your perceived future, the less happy you are with your finances. A whole host. Of things, so the consequences, unfortunately, are 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 pretty great for having high levels of fear.
0: And what are some of the ways that you suggest that people manage these fears?
1: Sure, uh, we we end the book with a variety of of suggestions that um, that we based upon previous research, what we found from our surveys, and uh, some of the things that we that we suggest to people is that they avoid overly partisan media. And this is one area of the book where um, we are a little bit different than most. That so There's a lot of focus on um, Fox News in um, in research on the negative effects of media. And we agree with all that research. We think that watching Fox News has incredibly negative effects. But we have found that watching partisan media of any kind, whether you're watching progressive party partisan media or conservative partisan media, can increase your fears because. Um, if you are someone who is a progressive and you are afraid of things that conservatives might be doing, then you're going to be hearing about that all day if you watch progressive partisan media. If you are a, a, a strongly conservative person, you're afraid of what those liberals are doing over there, you're going to hear about it all day on Fox News. And so when you watch partisan media, it, it tends to exacerbate those fears that you're already holding, whichever side of the aisle it's on, so to speak. And that's one thing we're finding in our, in our research that people haven't really discussed before. Um, so we suggest that people try to avoid that. Um, we, um, suggest that people strongly limit their screen time and smart smartphone use that, um, that we found that when people are compulsively using media, that when they're reporting that they're looking at their phone every few minutes, that that is, that is strongly associated with both increased fear and increased, um, emotional states that are related to fear, such as anxiety. Um, we, Tell people to be very skeptical of claims about all people of a particular category that um, that when you hear someone making a claim that all immigrants are are bad because of X, all uh, of, of Muslims are bad because of X. We tell people they should be skeptical of all such claims that um, unfor- that should obviously be something that that uh, sociologists well know, but something that we want to try to put out in a book that we hope has a more general audience. Um, we, uh, tell people that if they can, that, um, they can try to face their fears, that if you have limited exposure to the things that you're afraid of, depending on what we're talking about, uh, that can help with your fears. Um, and we have a number of other suggestions such as that we've already talked about that we, we really are trying to stridently hit throughout the book that, um, that people remember that the media always shows you the most unusual aspects of humanity that the media will never show you the commonplace because it would not get our attention and the media needs to get our attention. And, um, that's something that I know I've been harping on here, but it seems to be the biggest issue that we need to teach people about the media. We will never change people's desire to see the strange and unusual. We will never change the media's desire to show it to us. All we can change is how people understand what they're consuming. Um, and, uh, we, we talk about ways that people can recognize conspiratorial thinking when they see it and, um, ways that they can try to uh, be vigilant about attempts to manipulate them, uh, via their fears. Mm-hmm.
0: And then thinking broadly about the research that you conducted for this book, um, what surprised you the most about the research process and your findings?
1: Sure. Um, some of the things that surprised us the most and, um, I think that some of these surprises came about because of the broad scope of items about which we were able to ask that with a focus, with this survey having a focus on fear, we devoted a large amount of the content to people's fears. Whereas in previous research, questions about fears were very limited, sometimes two or three questions on a survey that was about something else. And so that allowed us really to move beyond individual areas that have been studied um, by other scholars for such as the fear of crime into a broader focus on fear in general and some of the things that really surprised us. And, and I would have, if we had done this uh, interview before we conducted the research, I would have made a prediction that would have been incorrect, that I would have expected that um, older people would be less, less more afraid of everything that um, there's been a host of research showing um, the fears of older people and with older people having, um, more vulnerabilities and certain characteristics, we would expect them to be more afraid. But we were, were finding over and over again, regardless of type of fear in most cases, that younger people are more afraid. That um, And we think this goes back to the idea of, of um, uncertainty, that younger people are less um, comfortable with their economic circumstances in general, less certain about their job prospects in the future, more likely to be unemployed. Um, and these types of things that younger people face seem to lead to higher levels of fear. And that was very surprising to us. We expected to this to be basically the story of the fears of older people. And it turned out not to be that way. Not only are the young more afraid, it's one of the key indicators of fear is how young you are. Um, The other thing that really surprised us is um, that the effects of some forms of religion, particularly church attendance was curvilinear. We found curvilinear effects that we didn't expect. Um, And, uh, Curvilinear in the sense that basically people who are certain, again, going back to this idea of how important uncertainty is for fear, are less likely to be afraid. Um, So when we're thinking about a religious person uh, or your personal religiosity, you could be certain in one of two ways. You could be absolutely certain that God not only exists, but exists in a certain form. If you're an evangelical Protestant uh, and you are certain, you would be certain that God exists. Jesus is the only son of God, that the Bible is God's word. The other way you can be certain about religion is you can be certain that God does not exist. You can be certain that there is no God, that there's nothing beyond the physical world. And what we find is that when people are certain about religion, they have lower levels of fear than when they're less certain. People who are kind of religious, who go to church once in a while, who say that religion is sort of important to them, but not really important, who say that they have some doubts about it. Those are the people who are the most afraid of a variety of things. In other words, with this big issue that most people answer for themselves over their lifetime, is there a God? And if there is a God or gods, what are they like? What do they want from us? People who've developed a certain answer for themselves tend to be less fearful than people who are still wondering that are sort of moderately or um, a little bit religious.
0: Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, When I read the part about the age, uh, it was especially interesting to me um, because I also expected older people to be more afraid than younger people. Um, And this might go off of what surprised you, but it doesn't have to. Um, What are some future areas of research that you think those who study similar areas such as fear um, or the paranormal or religion, uh, what do you think some of those future areas of research um, should look like?
1: Sure. Um, I certainly hope that, um, that the fear research that we're doing, um, encourages other people to do their own work and other work to be the one thing I want to say here as an aside is that the fear survey data is completely public. We want other people to use it. We want other people to publish off it. Um, so any wave of the survey is, is available for, um, free downloading and use very soon after it's collected we don't hold on to it ourselves for three years we want other people to use it and we hope that it spurs more research on fear and we hope that people disagree with things we're doing and don't just complain about it but do better that we think it's important that there be quality research on fear and there are many different ways that people could take that research that we hope that they do that um that we are just starting our understanding of fear and all of our questions about fear on the surveys that we've done ask people, how afraid are you of X, whether it be um, vampires or a major natu- natural disaster? We um, we don't have the room on the survey with the, v- the vast number of items we're asking to ask other questions which are very related, such as how likely are you to think that X will happen? In other words, a large part of fear may have to do with how likely you are to think it's going to happen to you. Um, we also um, don't have the space to ask on our survey, given all the other things we have to ask about, how bad would this thing be if it happened to you? How um, how would you rank order these fears in, in, in terms of the thing that you personally think would be the worst to possibly happen to you? Uh, so ideas of how likely something's going to happen, which is something that the, the research on the fear of crime looks at, how terrible it would be if it did happen, all of these are issues that could be expanded in, in the, the research on, on fear. And this, this uh, survey is also cross-sectional. It's a different sample every time. So one thing that is missing from this research and will never be in this particular research project is the um, idea over a period of time how someone's fears affect them. And how a particular type of fear rises or falls within the same person based on world events, and how how fear at time X influences behavior at time Y. Those are questions we can't answer, and we hope other scholars with an interest will step in and do some related research.
0: Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of room for sort of building off of this project in different directions. Um, but go ahead. Sorry. No, I was but- just
1: going to say that I was just going to say that. Um, that I really view research as someone's got to go out there, and by this I mean all of us, and just just make an attempt. And that's what we're doing with the fear survey. And we don't think that we're right. We think we're, we're making an attempt. We are trying to ask about fear in the way that we can with the resources we have in the best way that we know how. And rather than have people convinced that we are correct, uh, we just want people to do good research, which means find where we're wrong and do it better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, but we've taken up a lot of your time today, um, but I do want to ask you our final question that we always ask guests on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now or next?
1: Sure. There's, there's a couple of projects that I'm working on now. Uh, one is uh, myself and one of my co-authors, Joseph Baker, we've written books on paranormal belief, and uh, we're expanding that research to look at paranormal beliefs around the world. Uh, we're very interested in Paranormal beliefs, because they appear to be something that steps in as conventional religion starts to sort of wither a little bit. That um, as people become less likely to ex- exhibit a particular religious identity, saying that you are a Christian, saying that you are um, a type of Christian, whatever, they um, they don't tend to become atheists. What they tend to do is they tend to start developing other beliefs that are not um, related to religion, but not explicitly religious or outside of religion altogether. So we're We have seen in the United States um, a rise in paranormal beliefs that is tied to a diminishing of conventional religion in the United States. And we um, want to expand our research to other nations where um, where we can sort of test those propositions and see if it's working in the same way. Um, Also, I'm uh, working on a project just the very beginning stages about the negative consequences of nostalgia Um, in the sense that. There's a a persistent belief amongst people that the world was better, particularly amongst people in in, um, who have more social power, that the world was better um, in previous decades. It was safer. People were friendlier to each other. um, There was less there was less crime. People had more stable futures. There's all these ideas that we have where we sort of idealize the past or certain segments of the population idealize the past. And I believe that that um, that tendency can be pretty toxic, that if you look at um, examples of uh, of both social movements and political movements, which have had negative consequences, they oftentimes are movements that are based on the idea of things used to be better. We need to stop these people from coming in. We need to stop this change in society where we accept certain groups because it was better back in the day. And uh, I'm trying to uh, work out some survey, survey items and some ethnographic research, which will allow me to get to this idea of nostalgia and figure out its ultimate consequences for how people vote and how people live their lives.
0: Yeah, those sound like great projects. Uh, where can listeners find you online to learn more about your work and this book,
1: sure um that uh, i publish under christopher bader there's a lot there's a surprising number of academics with the name chris bader so um if you look up christopher bader you'll see the things that i've published and the books that i've written um i am um this is a sign of my age i guess i am not on twitter or instagram yet although my co-authors have been bothering me to do <laughs> it um So I'm not uh, widely available online, but I do. um, I am the associate director of a major data archive called the ARDA, T-H-E-A-R-D-A dot com. And that is uh, a website that people can go to um, where it's focused on religion. But we gather data sets as long as a data set has a single question on religion. We will include it. And so there's a huge host of data sets that um, sociologists who are working on their masters or dissertation uh, projects could Go there and find for free data sets that have already been cleaned that they can download and uh, and explore for potential dissertation or thesis ideas.
0: Yeah, there's some like, great resources between the public data that you have for that uh, the fear survey and the data archive you just talked about. So that's awesome. Um, so again, this has been an interview with Dr. Christopher Bader, author of Fear Itself, Causes and Consequences of Fear in America co-authored with joseph baker l edward day and ann gordon christopher i want to say thank you again for being on the show today and i really enjoyed chatting with you
1: thank you i appreciate it that was that was a fun interview
0: yeah well take care
1: all right you too